Ignacio Ercaria was moved to the depths by the sight of a people oppressed, deceived, and ridiculed in the forceful terms he always used. He reacted to this, not just by way of lament. He never made peace with the pain it implies, as postmodernism tends to do today when it argues that one must accept fragmentation, or as neoliberalism does when it insists there is no other solution. That was the Jesuit theologian John Sabrino on his friend Ignacio Ercaria, whose concept of the crucified people we'll be discussing today. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Michael E. Lee is joining the podcast today to discuss Ignacio Eacaria's Mysterium Liberationis article on the crucified people. And Dr. Lee is a professor of theology at Fordham University in New York with an affiliation in the university's Latin American and Latino Studies Institute. Born in Miami, Florida of Puerto Rican parents, he holds a master's degree from the University of Chicago and a master's degree and a doctorate from the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of two books, Revolutionary Saint, The Theological Legacy of Oscar Romero, and Bearing the Weight of Salvation, The Soteriology of Ignacio Eacaria, as well as the editor of the book Ignacio Eacaria, Essays on History, Liberation, and Salvation, and Michael, as well as director of the Curran Center for American Catholic Studies. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm especially eager to have this conversation today because of our shared interest in Ignacio Eacaria. Let's begin with Eacaria's story, your story, and their intersection. How was it that you came to study Eacaria, and what elements of his life and work attracted you? Well, let's see. I was in college in the 1980s. I'm going to immediately date myself at the beginning of this podcast. And of course, uh, you know, the foreign policy question in the United States was the relationship to Central America and El Salvador in particular. At the time after college, I had lived, I'd begun to live in a Catholic worker community in Phoenix, Arizona. And so part of the populations that we encountered were Central Americans who were coming across, fleeing the war. So that story, the happenings, uh, certainly after the assassination of Monsignor Romero, was very present to us. And, and I remember vividly that day in November of 1989, when the assassinations that took Ayacuria's life and his companions, that was a really um, intense day and, and a lot of mourning. You know, after that, I returned to, to studies in theology, formal studies in theology, and, and I had the good fortune of being able to study with uh, Father Gustavo Gutierrez. And yet I came across this essay that Ayacuria wrote on the historicity of Christian salvation. And my goodness, that essay just rocked my world. I had done a good deal of liberation theology, and, and I still think uh, Gustavo is a, a genius, a brilliant theologian. But there was something in Eacuria's writing I had really not seen before. And so it, it convinced me that this is, this is a guy I want to study. 
And then the more you know about his life, it's this remarkable combination of a, a really profound scholar, philosopher, theologian, and at the same time, this uh, remarkable witness as the university president there and eventually a martyr. So that that combination for me has always been very powerful. Ayakuria, uh, you know, being a, a, a scholar myself and a scholar in the United States, it's a position of power. It's a position of privilege. And yet Ayakuria, who is also in a privileged space, found a way to serve the ones, as we segue into the essay, the ones he called the crucified people. And he found a way to do that uh, from his space as a scholar, as a university president, as a Jesuit. And so that has always made, I think, a very powerful impact on me and as one who teaches in a Jesuit university uh, for our community, for our students to say, hey, this is, uh, this is someone who, who is a model across uh, many different levels. And you mentioned uh, being at a Jesuit university and Air Korea being a Jesuit. And I would just add to that, that I feel like for myself, coming to know Ignacio Air Korea for me is also coming to know a way of being a Jesuit. And mm. in that uh, way of being a Jesuit, though each of us, you know, adds our own individuality to it, uh, there's something there about Air Korea and his way of being a Jesuit uh, that's very special. So, Getting into the text for today, the crucified people in Mysterium Liberationis, a word that jumps out immediately right there on the first page several times is reality. Mm. What did Ea Korea mean by reality? And why is it significant that he uses this term? And before maybe uh, we get into that, also I would say one of the things that I first noticed in my time in, in Guatemala, Honduras, and in El Salvador is that many times when there would be like a colloquium or a forum on a particular topic, the first person who would speak would also also speak on a presentation of the national reality. Mm. And so it struck me, they're always starting with reality. And so here, once again, we have Ignacio Ayacaria in this essay, starting with the word reality. So tell us a little bit about what that might have meant uh, for him. Yeah, well, like you said, it, it really is a loaded term. I mean, whenever Ayacuria uses the word realidad, reality, it's this intense hyperlink that when you click on it, it's going to give you a whole lot. Uh, I think part of it is the way that many, especially in El Salvador, used uh, reality to talk about their situation. Maybe, maybe just a word or two on on the historical context of this essay. You know, it's it's first published in 1978, and that was a really intense time in the country and for the church. Since the beginning of that decade, you know, the, the formation of the base communities and conscientization, the conscientization that was happening there is to discover the reality around you. So this consciousness about the structural problems, poverty, and oppression that were taking place. So reality has this very heavy sense of of discovering that that more seeing um, the structural causes of things etc and so the term for aequia however uh, takes on a really uh, dense a philosophical kind of connotation 
his own philosophical book, the, the one monograph he, he wrote, and even that had to be completed after he was killed, is called The Philosophy of Historical Reality. And though we could spend many hours on it, maybe a shorthand way is to take a look at those two terms, because very often with Ayakuria, it's historical reality. It's his philosophy of historical reality. And by reality, it's this view of things that's dynamic and structural. You know, it's funny, uh, the German Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner used to say that many everyday Christians were really monists, that they, in practical terms, didn't really understand the Trinity and uh, didn't follow it much. And I think in some ways, in some ways, we can still say today that, that many people are still uh, Copernicans. Like, they, they haven't quite accepted many of the insights of contemporary science, particle physics, quantum mechanics, and Ayakuria's philosophical mentor, uh, a Basque by the name of Javier Zubiri, really uh, pursued those insights in how we talk about reality as this dynamic interaction of all things. All reality is tied together. And so dynamism is a key notion when talking about reality and interrelationship, right? Just as Heisenberg, etc., we know that as we observe things, we participate in them. You know, there's no such thing as a detached observer in our world. And so it's that sense of interrelation and a sense of structures, you know, I often talk to my students and I say to them, you know, nobody woke up this morning and said, hmm, I'm going to go make somebody in Southeast Asia poor today. And yet we participate by the way we shop, the goods that we purchase. We participate in these exploitative structures. And so that's part of our reality, even though we don't see it. And we might not even be aware of it. So uh, reality for Ayakuria is that sense of getting to these dynamisms, getting to those interrelationships, getting to that structural piece. And then historical has to do with, with how uh, that reality places demands on us. And, and reality is very complex. I mean, he goes from the very biological, physical roots of reality to these higher levels. And he talks about history as opening and closing of possibilities. And so that that is all behind this concept of reality. And though it, it can seem, and, and it gets pretty technical at times, when you look at a reality like El Salvador's in, say, 1977, 1978, when Ayacuria was writing this article, it's a country that had just endured a second <laughs> a fraudulent election that was carried on by a military that had controlled the presidency since the 1930s. People were organizing, coming to consciousness. These base communities were active, and they were really beginning to face violent repression. In 1977, the Jesuit priest, Rutilio Grande, who organized some of the earliest base communities in El Salvador, he was murdered. And a death squad, these paramilitary organizations that uh, emerged in El Salvador during this period, threatened to kill all of the Jesuits if they didn't leave the country. So, so this is the, the reality that Ayacuria is writing from. And so, yeah, it's, it's it's really appropriate to pick up on that term because it's a key to his philosophical understanding, but it also brings to the fore the importance of, of accounting for that, not escaping from that, which is going to be 
really important as we look at some of the theological insights in this essay. And the essay is grappling with the relationship among the crucifixion of contemporary people, the crucifixion of Jesus and salvation. Why link the historical suffering of the people of El Salvador in the 1970s, for example, with the passion of Jesus? And where does salvation come in? It's an excellent question. And for Ella Curia, I think it links a lot to the methodology that was being used among liberation theologians, and even in the formation of the base communities, the so-called see-judge-act methodology, in which one looks at reality to see what is happening, and then from there go in light of the scriptures for Christians uh, to judge and then to act appropriately. From Ayakuria's perspective, that it that is the starting point, a reality in which the majority of humanity, majority of the Salvadoran population, but indeed of humanity, lives in oppressed conditions. And so as a Christian, he's asking the question, well, what does this mean for a religion like Christianity that's preaching salvation? What does salvation mean in light of it? What could it possibly, what can the church possibly say in a situation like this that means good news? Um, these are the kinds of questions that are prompting this reflection. But I think particularly the intensity of that moment is why this amazing metaphor that he employs, one that's, yeah, it's it's difficult and it's, gosh, it, it has so many different implications, but to talk about people who are crucified and then to ask this question of salvation. So I think it starts there and then he begins to build on this connection. And while obviously to talk about crucified for Christians, it would be immediately to think about Jesus on the cross, Eucharistia is actually introducing a, a third figure, right? So it's the way that early Christians who experienced the crucifixion of Jesus turned to their scriptures, and specifically the book of Isaiah, where you have this figure of the suffering servant. And so those words from Isaiah that make their place in the Gospels, that many people might even know from Handel's Messiah, right? These, these uh, verses about this suffering one. For Ayakuria, that dynamic of reading Jesus through this lens of this suffering servant lends itself then today to asking about how does this this figure of the suffering servant that for early Christians gave them an image gave them a language, gave them a way to talk about Jesus Christ, his crucifixion as somehow salvific, might that open a way for us to think about how that same kind of reality today in some amazing, mysterious, scandalous way can be true today? What it does, though, is forces Christians to really interrogate how they think about Jesus, right? Ayakuria mentions that there's a kind of loss of scandal. People aren't scandalized by the notion that, yeah, salvation came because of Jesus' death. It's, it's, it's almost not even thought about. And Ayakuria wants to, to recapture the, the scandal that's implicit in a claim like that. At the same time, it's really dangerous water that he's wading into. And I think um, we can talk 
maybe perhaps later on about critiques of this essay and 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 ways of thinking about oppressed people that uh, don't sit comfortably. But I think he's aware of that and and talks about the scandal in associating salvation with the oppression of people. And so that's really where this is centered and it's and it's a way to, to force Christians to account for the very heart of their beliefs. If it's a religion that proclaims salvation, it has to do so in light of this reality. And if it evades that reality, then it's really not the gospel. It's really not salvation that's being talked about. So there's a lot of stake in this essay. <laughs> and perhaps we can return for a moment to the relationship between the crucifixion and salvation. I think that for many people, probably like you said, maybe many people don't think about the relationship potentially between the crucifixion and salvation and the way in which that is scandalous. But then also for those who might begin to think about it, or maybe those who have also thought about it for, for a long time, mm -hmm. it is very mysterious. How is it that the death of one person this one person who is also God, how is it that this is salvific? Is, is Aeacharia addressing that question, or is that maybe not necessarily the question that Aeacharia is, is addressing at all in this essay? No, he's definitely addressing it. And make no mistake, salvation is one of the least defined of the Christian doctrines. It's, it's difficult ground we're covering here when we talk about salvation, and especially about if we're talking about the mechanics, like how does this happen? How does this occur? I mean, we are, we are in the realm of holy mystery. At the same time, Eacuria is looking at the effects of different ideas of salvation. So very famously, uh, Anselm of Canterbury uh, talks about, you know, why God became human and, and how Jesus's crucifixion can be seen in almost a, a paying back and this transactional kind of language uh, that has stemmed from him. I think actually Anselm makes a more subtle argument, but Eucharia is painfully aware of how different theories, different ways of interpreting the crucifixion that, to be sure, is, is at the heart of, of Christian worship. I mean, we here we are in Easter season, and that commemoration of the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are at the very heart of the gospel. But Eucharia is going to ask questions like, well, if one looks at Jesus's crucifixion as, for instance, a one-time event that paid off some sort of debt, then, well, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Or perhaps because it is uh, divinely done, then humans can passively receive it, and one doesn't need to worry about even the way one acts in the world. So he's always very concerned about the way that our notion of salvation, our notion of Christ, is affects how we act, how we practice. So let me just give you one example. In an earlier essay, Eacuria asks, or he really places two questions. He compares the question, why did Jesus die, right? Why did Jesus die? Which is this profound answer about salvation of humankind, etc. But then he said, what's the difference between asking why did Jesus die and why was Jesus killed? 
And that second question gets to something that the former question doesn't. The first question is very important, but according to Aya Kuria, yeah, you really need to answer that second question first. Because when you ask about why was Jesus killed, you enter into the drama of Jesus's life, his preaching, his actions, and you really get at, as we were talking about before, the historical reality to which Jesus responds, which then becomes the model by which the church should respond as well. And there again, you see this, this tie between viewing Jesus, Jesus in his ministry, Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels, and the reality today, and that deep connection he wants to make between um, the figure of Christ crucified and the ones he calls uh, crucified today. In response to that, in relation to that, I want to read out a, a message that I received recently that I think really gets at this difference in understanding salvation that you were just speaking about. This person wrote, this is, this is a criticism of the Liberation <laughs> Theology podcast, <laughs> a Catholic church that fails to prioritize the eternal salvation of individual human souls and instead seeks to ameliorate misery in this world to the exclusion of the former is beholden to the enemies of Christ and is guilty of the sin of Judas. So a harsh critique, but I think behind this critique is actually kind of a, a rather common belief that uh, some portions of the Catholic Church have, and not only the Catholic Church, but uh, many Christians in general, would be that really what the gospel is about is about the salvation of the individual soul, and that comes through an accepting of the salvation that Jesus offered for us on the cross. And so I make that statement of belief, you know, I accept Jesus into my heart and belief, and uh, then that salvation that has been won for me by Jesus is then applied applied and I'm saved. So I think that there we see Aea Korea trying to make this connection between the crucifixion of Jesus and the crucifixion of contemporary people. And he's saying that uh, this connection really, I would say, one of the things that has been very transformative for me in learning about liberation theology would be that sometimes we can think of salvation and liberation as two different things. But I think Juan Luis Segundo and many liberation theologians were really trying to say that actually these two words are almost synonyms, you know, when they're used in the gospel. And we see that the project of Jesus, which is one of liberation, it's what he proclaimed, you know, in his first uh, reading in the synagogue and said, this is what I'm about. This is what I'm doing. I'm about the liberation of captives, of the, the oppressed. And so when one separates, just as you were saying, the drama of Jesus's life before the passion, from the passion itself, one really does miss out on many elements of the gospel. And in fact, I would argue, really the majority of the gospel, <laughs> even though we know that the crucifixion, you know, the passion, death, and resurrection narrative does take up a significant portion of the gospel stories. Uh, it's not the majority of the gospel story, you know, in terms of length. And I think that there's something to that, that when the writers of these gospels were writing them, they did include chapters and chapters of Jesus's life and ministry which are not necessarily disconnected from uh, the Paschal mystery. And I think the same thing would be true, maybe if we were to transfer that to historical reality, that we know that we're going to die. Uh, this is a reality. Um, and I have, of course, a personal hope uh, 
in the resurrection of myself and others, uh, and that's very important. But to then say, I'm going to totally disassociate that from uh, life life and ministry, essentially, uh, historical reality as we know it, I think there's a parallel there with the, with the life of Jesus. And kind of a question that I wanted to ask you in line with that would be that you mentioned before that essay by Aya Korea that really grabbed you, which was about salvation. And I th- and you wrote this book about the soteriology in Aya Korea. So what might be some connections that you see between this essay on the crucified people and Aya Korea's idea of salvation that we might find elsewhere, like in that essay that you mentioned? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the subtitle for this essay, he describes it as an essay in historical soteriology. And he uses that only occasionally most famously then one of the last and great essays on utopia and propheticism. He describes that as an essay in historical soteriology. I would argue that it is his great contribution as a theologian. And I think it goes back to that note that you received, that that critical message. In some sense, if I heard it correctly, an emphasis on ameliorating suffering today at the expense of the eternal, well, that that would be spot on. But it's that divorce, it's that separation where I think the critic uh, got it wrong, that in fact, it is the unity of those two. And this is, is profoundly important, and it goes back to this historical sense, but even in the scriptures, Jesus proclaims not so much himself, he proclaims the reign of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? His preaching is about the reign of God, and Aequidia really emphasizes that. Because when we talk about the death of Jesus, or more accurately, Jesus being killed, Jesus is killed for the way he lived and the way he preached. A historical soteriology keeps that connection intact. When he was uh, writing a curia, a large theme in in theology, uh, very commonly heard was, and it came from biblical scholars, was this notion of salvation history, the action of God throughout history, and seeing God as an active agent throughout history, and and seeing this played out. And a curia used to say, salvation history is a salvation in history, particularly as a Catholic. I mean, it's we have such an incarnational imagination. God becomes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. This incarnational notion of in history is where we we make our relationships, where we respond to God's grace and God's gracious self-offer. That That's what history is, or where it all happens. And so in thinking about this emphasis in history, and, and its relationship to salvation. You know, one of the simplest definitions of salvation comes from Gustavo Gutierrez. I love it. He says, salvation is simply communion with God and communion with others. But when you begin to really, really ask what that looks like, you see how complex it is and also how far we are from it in reality. So that in this essay, Ayakuria focuses on this figure of Christ crucified, and especially as him crucified because of his ministry, because of his proclamation of the reign of God. And it, and it was that that gives a kind of necessity to Jesus's death. Like some people think, oh yeah, Jesus came to die. I've, I've heard that preached before. He was put on earth to die. Ah. 
Um, the necessity, Ayakuria says, comes from what happens when the reign of God is preached and lived, that the forces of sin uh, respond to that. What's, what's interesting about this as well is to think about how some contemporary figures give us some insights about this. In El Salvador, uh, Monsignor Rosca Romero is the clear example, although among many, many other Christians, I would add. Someone who, because of their faithfulness to the gospel, found themselves in a situation where their lives were threatened. I don't think he desired death at all. A couple of weeks before he was murdered, Romero had a retreat and he wrote about fear, his fear of death. But at the same time, he knew what God was calling him to do and he knew that he needed to continue in his role as a minister. I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's valuable here. Gustavo Gutierrez told me about his conversation with Monsignor Romero. He used to call him whenever he was traveling up from Peru. He'd go through El Salvador and visit with him. And in Spanish, when you end a conversation, you often say, cuídate, take care. So they finished up their conversation and he said, cuídate, Monsignor, utter silence on the other end of the phone. And then finally, Romero said, you know, Gustavo, if I were to take care of myself, I'd have to leave my country, but I can't do that. And you know, 10 days later, they murdered Romero. Did he know the time and the place? No, he didn't. But he knew his faithfulness to his calling may lead him there. And, and I, for me, that's a very interesting and new way to view Jesus in his own ministry and his own journey to the cross. In the United States, we can also think about a figure like Martin Luther King, who, who had a sense that if he walk, kept on walking this path, it may lead there. But the fidelity to the calling of God and the commitment to make this world look more like the kingdom of God that Jesus preached, more like this communion with God and others that is salvation. And again, a foretaste in history for something that is fulfilled, you know, with the complete fulfillment of history. No one achieves salvation and then pats themselves on the back, right? But these are ways of understanding this sense that the gospel communicates, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is and is not yet as well. And, and that moving between those two moments, I think, are, are crucial when understanding salvation. But I think uh, for Ayakuria and for others who have been influenced by this essay, it's a matter of, well, where, where is the drama of the gospel happening, right? At the end of the gospel of Mark, when the women go to the tomb, the angel says to them, go back to Galilee, right? Go back to the beginning part and make that journey to Jerusalem. So we might ask ourselves, well, how, how do we today go back to Galilee and make that journey to Jerusalem? And Ayakuria is going to say that is happening in the situation of oppressed peoples today, the ones he, want, he calls the crucified people. And if you're not attuned to that, then you're missing out. You're, you're missing out in, in, a, in a dramatic way. And again, if we remember that sense of, of, of interconnection that his view of reality demands, we know that all uh, of sorts of problems that we have on planet Earth today, the climate change, uh, migration, violence against women, you name them, none of us can step outside of those problems. You know, we, we are, it's these complex structures and these interrelationships. And so, you know, as Christians, Ayakuria is prompting the question. There are people who are crucified today who are bearing the weight of sin 
bearing its weight. And so what what does that what does that mean, right? And what's confounding about this essay, I think, is to to have that insight and then say, well, the scriptures, the book of Isaiah talks about the suffering servant who calls for justice. And that's key for aequidia, that the servant proclaims justice and yet is despised and bears the sins of the world. And yet God raises this servant. And it was that insight and that drama as it's played out that early Christians saw in Jesus. And so rather than simply attributing to the cross of Christ a kind of one time only, he prefers to speak about it as an ongoing process, right? That in some ways, the church lives out, the church, the body of Christ continues Jesus's mission in history. But this curious role of the servant Aequidia recognizes in the ones he calls the crucified people, and they call us to justice. They call us to this transformation, all these, these attributes that Christians would ostensibly see in the person of Jesus, and yet kind of held at arm's length and a couple thousand years, we can exist in a way that it doesn't bother us. Whereas the crucified people today, Aequidia is arguing in this essay, make that claim on us in a very concrete way. And so we are called to respond, respond to that reality. There's so much of what you said just now that stands out to me, but I want to return to two points that came to mind as you were speaking. The first one is on the Catholic incarnation and our incarnational way of thinking, because uh, just the other day here at Saint Trisev, uh, they really have a great focus on the church fathers, and they're very proud of their uh, trans French translation of the work of mm -hmm. the church fathers, which is really exceptional. And so one of the texts that we read was from Tertullian, and it was on the flesh. And he's going in a polemic fashion against a Marcion, who was denying the real incarnation of, uh, of God in Jesus. And at one point, Tertullian is just going on about how much Jesus loved the human body. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, much of Jesus's work was healing people. And then Jesus so loved the human body that Jesus took on a human body, you know, and and went through the what we might consider embarrassing process of being a baby you know, be, and growing up and all of the insecurities and the difficulties, but also the immense joy and pleasures of, of having a body. And there's something about that word crucified that at least when I read that word, it's such a bodily word. And, and so I think we see in the crucifixion of Jesus, it's, I mean, it's a term of torture. It's a term of great danger. It's a term even of, of embarrassment. It caught up in the incarnation of Jesus. And kind of what you were saying, it's all the more amazing to me uh, that we think of Jesus's prophetic teaching in that knowing God and knowing the necessity of history and what happens when one stands up to injustice, when one preaches in the midst of a Roman empire that the true empire or reign belongs to the poor, all of the ways that Jesus was acting prophetically before the religious and political authorities of his day and knowing that that would would lead to his crucifixion, you know, something that he pre predicts multiple times that he in some way knew was coming, that this is the consequence of this action, this course of action that I'm taking. And yet this is the salvific way. This is the salvific process of resistance 
So yes, with Tertullian, I feel like sometimes with the Dulubach and others, you read the church fathers and you just say, wow, there's such a richness in the church early on, having come to see that, uh, no, God and Jesus uh, did not only remain a spirit, but really did take on human flesh. And there's something about that that's deep and theological. The other thing was, just in class today, we were discussing uh, William Cavanaugh. And as you were talking about stepping out of the social uh, questions and the impossibility of doing that, it's not as if I step into the church and all of a sudden, the questions of gender and sexuality and race and all of these things don't matter. Many of the social conflicts are reproduced in the church. Some people were resisting, you know, Kavanaugh is too political. He wants to po politicize everything. And okay, but at the, <laughs> there's a certain way in which I wanted to say with Kavanaugh a little bit of what you were saying. It's not as if there's a pure church that exists outside of its humanity, outside of its social relations. These things are just what is, or maybe in what what uh, Air Korea would say, it's it's our reality, and the church must pass through and live in and through that reality. And also very moving what you shared about the conversation between uh, Gutierrez and Romero. I had not heard that before. Now, we've talked about salvation, the relationship between the crucifixion of Jesus and the crucifixion of the poor of El Salvador. So let's turn a little bit now to that question that you hinted at before, kind of what's at stake in this conversation, who are Air Korea's opponents, and how have other theologians responded to, maybe positively, but also maybe how have they criticized what we find in this essay on the crucified people? Yeah, well, to understand Ayakuria's thinking, I think you always need to keep in mind that he was a priest trained before the Second Vatican Council. And so he was formed in the um, in what we call neo-scholasticism and the so-called manual theologies. And I think he and his mentors, he, he did study with Rahner in Innsbruck in Austria. And that generation that flourished at Vatican II was really a reaction to the kind of dualisms that came out of of the manuals out of this neo-scholastic formation that really, I think, kind of took the distinction of the, the natural and the supernatural and just reified it, just made this hard distinction. And so you get these harmful dualisms that we know between body and spirit, but also male and female, clerical and lay. You can begin to see how these dualisms function practically in our world and in our church and when thinking about bodies and sexuality and you know, if you have a disdain, a complete disdain for the material, then um, it's pretty hard to, to discover people's dignity, etc. So that is always going to be a place to start from. And and Ayakuria is constantly talking about overcoming dualisms that, that he finds in different forms of Christian spirituality, but I think especially that were coming out um, in the time that he was formed and, and became a priest. And so You'll see in this essay, he'll often advert to some spiritualizing. He was a, a profound spiritual theologian, and he wrote a lot on spirituality. But he was very wary of spiritualizing that removed one from the world. Um, he was very suspicious of proclamations of faith or of practices in which the aim was to flee the world. He was not a fuga mundi type. No, he said, if you want to encounter God, you have to do it in the world, in reality, where God is revealing God's very self. So that that's always a, a key to understand him. Now, 
as far as the way he's been received, you know, positively, there have been those who have realized uh, the importance of what he says and and the way to enculturate what he says. Ayacuria, even in the context of El Salvador, is very cautious. He's going to say that you cannot point to a particular people and say, ah, there you go. They're the crucified right there. You know, he, this is this is uh, more about this reality that liberation theologians call social sin. And yes, there are incarnations of this, but he's very wary to, and certainly does not want to draw a kind of map of well, here, are the, here are the good and here are the evil, here are the oppressed ones, here are the oppressors. Rather, uh, he wants us to pay attention to our contexts. And so someone like James Cone will write a very powerful book on the cross and the lynching tree, right? So for Cone, the lynching tree, that grotesque, violent form of repressive execution that was meant precisely to stomp out any questioning of white supremacy, that perfectly melds as a symbol of the violence of the cross and the history of African-Americans in the United States. And so I think he's carrying out exactly the kind of analysis that Ayacurio is talking about here, to see in the crucified and then to see in the legacy of the lynching tree, the ongoing reality of racial oppression um, in the United States here. And, and I'd, I'd add Sean Copeland as another one who has specifically uh, cited Ayacurio and used the language of crucified people in her intersectional analysis of, of women and black bodies being crushed, et cetera. And so I, I think that's a real key that people have picked up on that end. In terms of critics, I think the usual kind of critics of liberation theology, of those who were suspicious of even a notion like social sin, because what is Ayakuria talking about here about social salvation? He's talking about the need in and through the recognition of the crucified people to act in such a way in the world to prevent those crucifixions and to show mercy in, in our world today. So if you if you don't if you don't see those again, those structural realities, then this does sound much like the critic you cited, right? Reductionist or historical in a, in, a, in a bad way, because one is assuming that the historical is somehow opposed to the transcendental. And for, for Ayakuria, God transcends in history, not away from it. Ayakuria includes a lengthy citation from Marx on the proletariat as an emancipatory class that will end all classes. And what role does this citation play in Ayakuria's argument? And kind of maybe what I mean by that would be, why, why cite Marx in this way, in this particular essay? What, what would Ayakuria be about, or what is he trying to do uh, with that citation? But then maybe more broadly, following up on a great conversation that I had uh, a few months ago with Dean Detloff on the relationship between liberation theology and Marxism, what do you see as an Ayakuria scholar as the place of Marx in Ayakuria's thought uh, in general? Yeah, it's a really good question. It, it also reminds me of a funny story during the war. So this would be years after the publication of this essay. Ayacurio was doing everything he could to bring the two sides of the Civil War to a negotiated settlement. And he was fearless. I mean, he would meet with the most hardline conservative general or politician. He he debated Roberto Dovison, the mastermind behind Oscar Romero's assassination on TV. At the same time, he also met with comandantes in the FMLN, 
And there's a story about him lecturing them on how they didn't really know Marx very well. So you can imagine the image of a Jesuit priest lecturing uh, a so-called um, Marxist guerrilla on how he needs to read Marx better to understand him more clearly. But anyway, uh, in the context here, he cites Marx, first of all, to show that there is a precedent for considering oppressed peoples as the actor in the salvation of humanity. So even outside of Christianity, there are those. And so he points to, to Marx and, and Marx's uh, writing on the proletariat to show that it makes sense to do so. And, and it's, it, it does have a precedent. Of course, he's going to bring his own version of this. And so to, to step back more broadly, I mean, even in just the example of how Marx would then delineate the lumpen proletariat, the ones who... Um, are kind of devoid of class consciousness and therefore, you know, a stumbling block to the revolution. For A. Curia, that shows an incompleteness to Marx's analysis. When A. Curia speaks about the crucified people, he's not talking about the conscientized uh, revolutionary crucified people. He's talking about anyone and everyone. He's talking about those women and children in the Sumpul River Massacre or El Mosote. I mean, he's talking about anyone. And so in, in terms of his relationship to Marx, you know, in terms of philosophy, Marx is, is classified in terms of, you know, dialectical materialism. Those are key words in the Marxist lexicon. And, and I think that is influential on Ayakuria. He's a he is a materialist. He is paying attention to historical reality down to its very biological and cellular roots. So he's a materialist through and through. But as Hector Samuel, who was a scholar at the UCA, who recently passed away, but has written just a marvelous book on Ayakuria, he describes Ayakuria as an open materialist. So whereas the dynamisms and the forces uh, of history, as Marx describes them, uh, tend to be closed. And you see, even in some uh, Marxist states, the way that the party, etc., begins to dominate and remove agency, individual agency, etc. Equity has this openness. There's this open and uh, again, I had used the word dynamic earlier in the podcast. So there's this dynamism in his thinking that builds from the material, but then is open. And even to talk uh, about God uh, as all reality rooted in God, etc. So I, I think it, it, another dimension I might add then is the value that uh, structural analysis plays here, right? So with Marx and Marxist thinkers, the notion of, of the structural, of these superstructures that govern the way we relate to one another, and in fact, the way society is functioning, you know, how capital, for instance, governs a lot of our relationships that might not be obvious on the surface. I think that's um, that's a critical insight for Ayakuria and a lot of the liberation theologians who saw in the reality of Latin America the influence and the power of capital of the Northern European and North American countries, etc. Having said all of that, it's not as if he mindlessly imbibed Marx unquestioningly. And in fact, Marx's critique of religion, of course, is where Ayakuria would part ways. 
because it's precisely that that religion that is an opiate of the masses that obfuscates these powerful structural forces that are at work in oppression that uh, consoles people with a, a next life so they don't do anything in this life that's precisely the kind of religion that Ecuria is criticizing that's one that he sees in the ministry of Jesus as being completely opposed. Jesus is talking about a reign of God that's present. Jesus is concerned about just relationships. Jesus is opposed to empire. And so, uh, yeah, and in as much as he is indebted in a kind of materialist and structural analysis to Marx, it is a different I mean, he he gives the response in some sense to the Marxist critiques of religion. And again, the, the openness and dynamism of his philosophical thinking, I think, also give him a space that's quite different uh, from what Marx and kind of uh, Marxist uh, doctrine might might lead one. Without getting too technical, I, I guess that that's where I, I would answer that. Also to note, though, I mean, he begins his philosophy of historical reality with an essay on Hegel and Marx. So to be sure, it's a critical engagement with all sorts of thinking. I mean, he is he is drawing from all sorts of scholarship and engaging it critically. But I think anyone who would say that Aequia's thinking is somehow non-Christian or anti-Christian, it's just Marxist doesn't quite understand Marx, but especially doesn't understand Ecuria. And yet recognizing that importance of that structural analysis and the way that the church, even today, is tempted to participate in those. I mean, in in a in colonial Latin America, you know, as Philip Berryman uh, talks about in his book, what do you see in every Latin American capital city in the central plaza? You have the government building on one side and the church on the other, each legitimizing the other. And so we're talking about a long history of colonial uh, spirituality here that Ayacuri is confronting in El Salvador and Latin America and, and in this essay. I want to react to two elements of what you just discussed there. One, which would be about the open materialist. And one of the things that I see in common between Ayacuria and Marx, which to me is also very inspiring, which would be in those theses on Feuerbach. Mm. Um, two of the theses that uh, stand out to me would be the one where Marx talks about there's no like human essence, but humanity is the ensemble of human relations. The other one, which would be the last one, you know, where he talks about philosophy's job is not just to interpret, but to change reality. And I think both of those things go along with what Ea Korea, you know, not in a one-to-one way, but they're very related when Ea Korea is talking about that interpretation of the open materialist, because I think what Marx wanted to say was philosophy has not really yet considered the possibilities of history. And that's one of the things that you had mentioned as well, was when Ea is talking about history, it's this transfer of possibilities from generation to, to generation, social context to social context, and how people appropriate and advance uh, certain ways of inhabiting reality from generation to generation. So that's that's one thing that comes to mind. And I find that as, as someone who is interested in philosophy and wants to to work on philosophy as uh, very essential, which is related to the second point, which would be one of the things that Ea Korea says, I think it's in his theological writings. He has a whole essay where he's talking about the relationship between Marx and Christianity, and it may be just a series of notes maybe that 
potentially wasn't published, but one of the things that he says there is that really what the church needs to do in certain contexts is to reinterpret the dogma in light of Marx's ideological critique. And I think that that is is also uh, so important because of what you were just saying. So many people, especially those who might be more on the left today, may look at religion and they may see one of two things. Either they see a religion which is, in fact, oppressive. It's not simply the uh, opiate of the masses. It's actively oppressing people. And so they want have no, they, they don't want to have anything to do with that. Then there's others who would take that more classic uh, Marxist approach that maybe it's more of a numbing effect. You know, in, in a way, it's kind of good in a sense in that it's comforting people in a very oppressed reality. It's that heart of the heartless world. But at the end of the day, that heart is not going to suffice because it's not getting us to where we need to be towards the revolutionary component of social reality. And so what Aya Korea, I think, is proposing is not necessarily a reinterpretation, but I think it goes back to the ressourcement that many liberation theologians were into, uh, which is that there is a thread that runs from, from the prophets through to Jesus, through to the history of the church, of this liberatory Christianity. And that thread, that way of existing in reality is being picked up by the liberation theologians like Aya Korea who are then advancing that way of existing in historical reality. And then a last point related to that, which would be something that Antonio Gonzalez uh, says in one of his essays uh, in a recent book that was published uh, that's all about Aya Correa's thought. It has a chapter from Metz in there, Gutierrez, Sabrino, maybe I'm forgetting the name of the title right now. But in this book, uh, Gonzalez says that in the philosophy of historical reality, at the end, Aya Korea arrives at praxis and the praxis of liberation. And he says one of the things that he sees as implicit in Aya Korea's thought would be that maybe if Aya Korea would have had more time, he would have almost rewritten or adjusted that text to start from the point of liberation, you know, so that it would not only be the end point of this reflection on historical reality, but also a starting point. I think that gets back to as well. That starting point uh, that goes back to Marx, which would be the role of philosophy is is not only to interpret the reality, but also to transform it. And certainly uh, many liberation theologians looking at the reality of oppression, almost you see the suffering of human people and you experience a compassion like Jesus did, and he wants to transform that reality. You know, he sees reality, and at the same time, there's this, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I want you to heal me. I want you to transform my reality into one of health. So I think, um, you know, for, for Marx and liberation theology, think exactly as you as you mentioned there, if one really looks at Aya Korea, you're going to find critiques of Marx. I mean, the, the critiques are there. Uh, really, in almost any essay that he writes where he cites favorably things about Marx, you'll also find critiques. And so one can't say that that Aya Korea was a dogmatic Marxist, but like you say, he drew from many different traditions. And uh, so it's important to, to, see, to see that. Now, I'm curious, you know, this is a text that was from the 1970s. You know, here we are in 2023, oh, 2023. And so, you know, 30, 40 years after the publication of this text, where do you see the place of the crucified people in theology today? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, firstly, it is 
to focus theological eyes at that drama, the, the passion that is occurring in our world today in so many ways and in so many places and responding to that, whether it is uh, the cross and the lynching tree or whether it is the destruction of our planet, this essay invites us in to really engage the heart of things, what's happening in our, our world. In a world that is enamored with unreality, as John Sobrino has always reminded us, and a church that is often guilty, as he says, of ecclesial docetism, you know? Uh, so uh, I, I think the challenge of that essay continues, and it's the challenge to see that how that is playing out in, in our contexts, to be creative as he did. You know, I, I think about his comment on uh, Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises and the famous reflection he gives on the colloquy at the foot of the cross, where, where the retreatant stands before Christ crucified and asks, what have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What ought I do for Christ? And Ayacuria's famous reflection comes back. Uh, Look with your eyes and heart at these people who are suffering so much, some from poverty and hungers, others from oppression and repression, then pray the colloquy before this crucified people, asking yourself, what have I done to crucify them? What am I doing in order to uncrucify them? And what ought I do that this people be raised? I think that challenge is with us today as much as it was uh, in 1978, if not more so. But I, I'd like to go back and, and address a question I think is really active today. I've had Folks who've read this essay who say, why are you putting it on the crucified people to save us? Uh, yet another thing for them to do? And, and, and what do you mean that other people's suffering can save me? So it's, it's a real critique about uh, putting on the crucified people a task that they did not choose and to somehow exploit other people's suffering in a way to think about one's own salvation. It's a really intense critique and one that, that I've wrestled with a lot in reading this essay. And, you know, I, I, I was rereading it again and again, and, and there's a passage toward the end of the essay where Ayakuria actually talks, begins talking about the suffering, the suffering of Christ, and the identification of Jesus with, um, with those who suffer. And, and he's thinking particularly about the famous Matthew 25 uh, parable of the Last Judgment. And then he has this to say. He says, the Son of Man is he who suffers with the little ones. Did, did you give them food? Did you give them drink? Did you visit and went imprisoned, etc.? And it is this Son of Man, he says, precisely as incarnate in the crucified people who will become judge, because that's a parable of judgment. In its very existence, he says, the crucified people is already judge, although it does not formulate any theological judgment. And this judgment, he says, is salvation. This judgment is salvation insofar as it unveils the sin of the world by standing up to it, insofar as it makes possible redoing what has been done badly in history. And finally, insofar as it proposes a new demand as the unavoidable route for reaching salvation. That really struck me in a powerful way because it's not as much as, as Ayakuria is trying to remove 
a kind of history of viewing salvation in, in, in terms of a banking model, a transaction, somebody paying a debt or, or legal provision, somebody violated a law and has to pay for it. No, he's talking about communion. He's talking about wholeness. And when those relationships of wholeness, of communion, of justice are ruptured, then judgment occurs. And so the crucified people as judge is a lot more agency. You know, it's not poor things paying our debts for us or something like that. No, they are judge, he says, and that is salvation precisely because it's the confrontation with the way things are. It's that which says no, and it has to say no. This is the problem with that kind of pietism that looks to the cross and either simply sees it as interior or as metahistorical. So I, for me, I, you know, that really helped with, with that very challenging notion that, you know, it, it's a danger to talk about crucified people as agents of salvation, because are, are you legitimizing that suffering? Or are you making it good in some way? And, and I think that they, that they put a spotlight on where reality is. If you really want to know what's going in our world, it's happening at our borders. It's happening in prisons. And if you don't dare look there, then you're not seeing the world as it is. After seeing it, then you confront, you need to confront those systems. And that's what the crucified people do and call us to do. And I think that's a, that's a much better way to imagine the crucified people than these awful things like, oh, their suffering is somehow good. I don't think he's trying to valorize suffering at all. Quite the opposite. It's trying to mobilize the church, mobilize others to fight against those very forces, those very structural forces that indeed crucify and keep crucifying people. Going back to that reflection from the spiritual exercises, what have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? I think one of the most powerful elements of Air Korea's life for me would be that he was a university president. And at the same time as he was being a university president, he was involved in the reconciliation process of this war. He was advocating for the oppressed of this war. And that is so stunning when you think about that. I can almost see maybe uh, in an imaginative contemplation that I might do, Aya Korea as university president asking himself this question, what can I do for the oppressed people of El Salvador? as a Jesuit, as a university president, as a human being right now, and that he was not afraid to get involved. Whereas today, sometimes we see in occasionally, or maybe often in academics, people who are in the top levels, one of their goals is don't offend people. Don't You don't want to make enemies because that will damage the image of the university. People will say the university is partisan. You're just training people into an indoctrinated ideology. And then, of course, the money. <laughs> you lose money when you criticize rich people. Yet, Aya Korea really asked himself that question and took that so seriously. And it demonstrates that his thinking was subversive and dangerous. And in that it led to his death, as it was the case for Jesus. The other thing I think of that um, regarding the poor and their judgment, one of the, the songs, you know, it's very popular in, in the liberation theology movement from Mercedes Sosa, Solo Le Pido a Dios, where she says, I only ask God that the suffering would not be indifferent to me. 
that I would not be apathetic to it, and that the dry death would not find me empty and alone without having done enough. And I think of Ignatius too in that, in that really Ignatius had the same exercise, right, about regarding our decision-making in real life and history, that he had us do this deathbed contemplation where one would look, you know, near the end of my life, if I'm looking back on my life, what's the right choice to make? And I think that, you know, the same, the same thing we could say would be true you know, in that there's this judgment, you know, as as a, this death comes as a judgment, um, there's also a judgment that comes from the oppressed. And I think this is one of the most powerful things for me to hear sometimes. I think of moments that I've had, you know, someone who comes from a, a white suburban context in Chicago, where I have an experience, uh, maybe in Guatemala, in Honduras, in El Salvador, where someone really judges me, calls me out for acting in a certain way. And that's so, it's so powerful. And, and I would say, you know, from my perspective, I see it as salvific in this sense that it helps me become more in solidarity, you know, with the struggle of the people who are suffering. And that judgment is, is a judgment that I see ultimately as coming from Christ. It's, it's compelling my conscience to act in a way that is liberatory. And as you mentioned, there is the sense that people who come from privileged backgrounds should educate themselves around ways in order to transform uh, systems of, of oppression as privileged people are those who have really benefited from the system and continue to support it uh, tacitly and, and maybe uh, not so tacitly other times. But I do think, you know, in my personal story, that there, there are moments of having been called out that are just so important for transforming and, and kind of changing behaviors. And so, that you mentioned that judgment, I think that is is huge. And going back to him as a university professor, you know, th there were those who were suspicious or at least critical of Ayacuria's position. Very famously, Ricardo Falla, Jesuit in Guatemala, a Guatemala, you know, a community there that didn't even found uh, an UCA like they did in, in Managua and in Nicaragua and in El Salvador, but rather decided to stay as a research team to be closer to the people. And he, he writes this beautiful elegy after the Jesuits were murdered at the UCA. And he said, ah, Ayacuria, there in your air-conditioned office, you know, we were, we were suspicious, but now we know, but now we know. And, and he goes on and, and says more, but it, but it was that kind of, well, he's operating in those circles kind of thing. But, you know, there's a famous story told about his teaching. He's teaching a group of Jesuits and, and they're itching to be out there, you know, activists with the people and so on. And Ayacuria said to them, you know, we do our work en un escritorio, pero no desde un escritorio. We, we do our work in a desk, but not from a desk. He recognized the power of knowledge and the power of knowledge production. And while he definitely valued the activism and the work of activists and the need to stand in solidarity and to support that work, he didn't want to sell short the power and the contribution that the intellectual life can make in solidarity and in liberation. He described the mission of the UCA in terms of being the critical conscience of the nation. And in Spanish, you know, conscience is conciencia, con ciencia, with science. <laughs> so it was particularly the science, the genius of the university that could contribute to the nation's liberation in its own way, right? So it's not a, a monolithic way 
but he recognized different vocations to contribute to this larger picture of liberation and, and, and doing that in a desk as he did from his calling. But as, as Faya would recall, you know, he would then end his life head in the soil, the, the same posture he took when he took his final vows as a Jesuit, this forehead to the ground. And, and it's, it's a very powerful image and a fulfillment of his calling as a priest, as, as a scholar, and in really embodying that critical conscience. That even to go back to the discussion on Marx, you know, he, he was very critical of the Uca in Nicaragua and of the Jesuits there as being too close to the Sandinista revolution. And, and he always advocated you need to you keep a critical distance, which gives you the freedom to value what is good, but also to maintain that critical edge. And we see the disaster that is that is um, Ortega's administration now actively persecuting the church that 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 plays out. So it's um it is a really uh, profound model as as a university scholar, president, professor that Ayacuria uh, bestows and bestows on those, like I said at the beginning, uh, in positions of privilege. You, you're not going to mistake Ayacuria for a Salvadoran campesino, and and he didn't fool himself, but he he recognized his place in the historical reality of that country and the way that he could make a contribution. And I'd say the piece that's in addition to so many who wanted to contribute to a, a liberative revolutionary act, it was this theological notion of the signs of the times that also guided his thought. And I think would would be that other piece that that in the dialogue with Marx, you know, as a theologian, then he's going to say, uh, the signs of the times that that they're they're communicating something and and the vigilance to how God is revealing God's self in history is a part of that calling and gives gives flesh and gives concreteness to the good news that is the gospel. Before we go, is there something else you'd like to add? Uh, something that you wished we had talked about that maybe we didn't get to? Hmm. Those were a couple of the pieces. Um, I mean, you know, Ayacuria is an inexhaustible source because it, it would be fascinating to be able to connect the dots over his other essays of so-called historical soteriology. I mean, the crucified people is an early piece and it's happening before the Salvadoran civil war even takes place. And I think in those years in the 80s, which is really under that intense, intense pressure in which the the country is going through so much that you uh, you arrive at a new depth in his thought. Uh, not that this isn't a profound essay, and 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 really, uh, he he is such a great mind. But there's something about those later essays when he again revisits this notion of a historical soteriology that um, really, I think bookends so well. So for if if readers have really enjoyed this crucified people essay and, and uh, thinking in these terms, uh, you know, going to something like his utopia and propheticism article is really a great next step to really begin to piece together. And in, in fact, that's where my own research is going right now, really a way to, to bring together and articulate that historical soteriology with only the tantalizing notion that he was arriving at a point where he was going to step down 
down as rector of the UCA and devote himself perhaps to more writing and to consolidating. I mean, he's, as you said, doing so much in the context of this war and, and negotiations. He still would occasionally go back to Spain and, and work with Zubiri until the, he passed. Um, and and uh, so much going on that at the same time, he's producing hundreds of pages of essays. It's really quite remarkable, but it is also a gift and one that I'm still thinking there is a moment for his thought. I think that's why a few of us here in the States have devoted time to trying to get his work translated because it has been in Spanish that maybe some readers um, have not been exposed to it. And I just hope that uh, people do take the time and energy to read what many have called the really one of the finest minds of liberation theology. Thank you so much, Michael, for this rich conversation and the work that you're doing is so important. And I hope that we can speak again soon. Thank you. That would be a real pleasure. This has been great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Let's end our time together with our usual prayer, this time a poem called Song of Sickle and Sheaf by the Catholic Bishop Pedro Casal Daliga. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. With a callus for a ring, the bishop was harvesting rice. Bishop Hammer and Sickle? They'll call me a subversive, and I'll reply, I am. I live for my people in struggle. I march with my people on their way. I have a guerrilla's faith and revolutionary love, and between gospel and song, I suffer and say what I want. If I scandalize, I started by burning my own heart in the flame of this passion, cross of his own wood. I incite to subversion against power and money. I want to subvert the law that degrades the people into a flock and the government into a butcher. My shepherd became lamb. My king became servant. I believe in the international of heads held high, of speaking as equal to equal, and of hands linked together. And I call order evil and progress a lie. I have less peace than wrath. I have more love than peace. I believe in the sickle and the sheaf of these fallen heads of grain, one death and so many lives. I believe in this sickle advancing under this bare sun and in common hope, so curved and so stubborn. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.